welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. 2 Samuel chapter 15, if you want to turn there, where we're going to be this morning. You guys know the story of Blake, right? No? Well, maybe I should tell you the story of Blake if you don't know it. Uh, Blake was an outdoorsman, and he, uh, he loved to be outside. And, and, and you know how it is, those of you that are outdoors, outdoorsmen with me, you know how it is, we've, we've got to be outside. Like, it's not an option. And, and unfortunately, in the wintertime, it, it makes it kind of rough to, to be outside. It's cold, and we have all these rainy days and snow. And have you all seen the weather this week? It's, it's, oh, my goodness. Anyway, side point, it's, it's hard on the people that like to be outside. And so about this time of year, a few years ago, Blake decided he was going to go, and he was going to do some hiking. And even though it was cold, it was not going to rain. He thought, I'll just put on a lot of coats and I'll make this work. And as Blake was out hiking, he was by himself. He had his little pack on and he's going down the trail and, and he come up and laying across the trail was a snake. Now, I don't know. I know that some of you people are not snake people. Me with you, that's biblical. It's okay to be scared of snakes, okay? Uh, uh, Blake is an outdoorsman, so he, he's well-trained in snakes, and, he, and he's keeping his distance. And as he kind of goes off the trail and uh, around this long, big old, I don't know, I guess rattlesnake. It's scary anyway. As he's going around this snake, the snake looks up at him and begins to talk to him. And it says, hey, hey, please, please help. It's cold out here. And you guys know how reptiles work. If, if the sun's not shining on a reptile, they can't generate the energy to move. And, and so this snake is, is stuck because it, it just doesn't have the sunlight and it's cold. Please help me. Please get me out of here. I'll freeze to death if I stay here across this trail. Now, had that have been me, I would have been like, good. You just go ahead and freeze to death. I'm not worried about no snake. But Blake had a little bit more of a tender heart. Yet, he was an outdoorsman, so he knew that snakes were dangerous, and he knew to stay away from them. Better yet, he went to Sunday school as a child, and he knew that talking snakes were especially dangerous. And so, he was staying away from the snake. But the snake kind of begged him, please, please, please. And he says, fine, what, what can I do for you? And he's thinking he'll get a stick and push the snake off. He says, the snake goes, I need you to warm me up so I can crawl back to my den and hibernate and be safe. Now, Blake wasn't having any of this. Like, I'm not getting close enough to cuddle with you. That's, that's not how we do things. That's not safe. And the snake just kept begging. He said, please, please warm me up. Put me in your coat. Walk around. He says, if I put you in my coat, you'll bite me. And the snake goes, I promise. I promise I won't bite you. Please, if you'll just help me out, I'll forgo the biting thing this time, and, and you'll just save my life. And Blake, big old heart, he finally goes, okay. So he picks up this snake. I see some of you guys, the anxiety on your faces right now. Like, oh my goodness. He picks up this snake and, and he puts it in his coat and, and he starts to walk around. And before long, his body heat starts to warm the snake up and he feels it start to move a little bit and feels a lot of wiggling. And all of a sudden, he feels a really sharp pain in his side. He throws off his coat and he throws the snake down and he's mad and he's yelling and he's furious. He said, what are you doing? I can't believe you bit me. I trusted you. I was helping you. I invited you into my jacket out of all things and you're going to treat me this way. And, and the snake now warm just looks up at him and goes, you knew what I was and you picked me up anyway. This is your fault. This is a picture of how sin works in our life. Sin will always promise not to bite us. Put me in your jacket. Take me with you. Pick me up. I promise this time I won't bite you. And even if we know that sin generally has a bite, sin always says, no, no, I won't do that. 
And this morning, I want us to take some time to, to really understand the nature of sin, because many of us grew up in churches, or many of us grew up with an understanding of at least church or Christianity, and we tend to think of sin as like a list of, of do's and don'ts. Like, these are the things that if I do them, God loves me. And honestly, even if we know better here, sometimes we think in here, if I, if I don't do these or if I break these rules, then, then God loves me a little bit less. And that's how most people view sin, and that's how especially most non-Christians view sin, is that it's a list of rules. But sin goes a little bit deeper than that. Sin has a different meaning if you look at it biblically. Sin is a brokenness that we invite into our lives. See, this world was created completely perfect. If you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, when, when God is creating the earth, he'll create something, and then at the end of every day, it'll say, and he looked down and saw that it was good. He creates an ocean, and he sees that it's good. He creates humans, and he looks down and says, it is good. When God created this world, it was perfect in every way because God created it good. He created it with his own perfection. But then we see sin enter the world. And we see all of these things that God created to be good, we see them start to break. We see brokenness and corruption of the creation that God meant for us to live in. And so when we, when we look at the world, we, we really have two choices. We, we can choose the goodness that God created in the world. And that's what he lays out in the Bible when he says, don't do this or live this side. That's the goodness that he meant for us to live in. Or we can choose the corrupt version the broken version. Uh, imagine you were shopping for a new truck, new Ford truck, a new truck, and you had to have this new truck, and, and you went to the lot, and they had their, there were two right next to each other, and they were almost exactly the same. And you're talking to the salesman, and, and you're like, hey, I, I'm going to buy one of these, but I don't know which one to buy. What's the differences? He goes, oh, oh, that's easy. Brand new trucks sitting on the lot, never been drove. He says, uh, this one works perfectly. Uh, this one over here is the exact same price, but it hasn't ever ran. It doesn't run. Would you pick the truck that doesn't run and pay full price for it? What if you were going to Walmart and you wanted a new TV and, and there were two TVs there and they were the exact same price and, and you had the op opportunity to choose between them and you asked the salesman, it's like, well, what, which TV do I need? And he goes, oh, well, this one, you'll get this one in the box, completely working, everything's fine with it. How, however, this one for the exact same price w was dropped when we unloaded it and it has a big black spot in the middle of the screen, right where people's faces will be in the very dramatic moments of your favorite TV show. How many people would pick, I'll take the broken TV, but in our lives, we have that same option to pick. Do we pick the good life that God made for us? Do we pick the good creation that he created? Or, or do we pick the broken and the corrupt one? Too many times, we pick the broken one. And we invite it into our life. And, and just like that snake, we're inviting it to bite us. And, and we have this lie that it won't bite us. A married person uh, now suddenly attracted to somebody else that's not their spouse, and they start to go into an affair, and in their mind they're thinking, I deserve this, this, this is okay, I can do this, and, and in the back of their mind they're thinking, this won't bite me. My husband, my wife will never know. Nobody will ever figure this out. We'll, we'll meet way off somewhere, and it'll be okay. It won't bite me like it bites everybody else. But you fast forward a couple years and, and now you have a broken family and, and a person who has been abandoned by, the, by their spouse and their children because they, they let that sin into their life and it bit them. Too many times we make those decisions with different sins in our life, whether it was alcohol and drugs, things that we say, it won't bite me. 
but then we find ourselves addicted. Maybe it's pride and anger and hate. I can be bitter. I deserve to be better at that person for the way that they treated me. And, and, and we just focus on how much anger we have, how much hurt that we have. And, and we say, even though the Bible says it's a sin, it, it won't bite me. But then we find ourselves on down the road miserable as our whole existence is, is wrapped up in, in hatred and being tied up in the sense of always being wronged. And all of these things and thousands more of examples, they, they start with the lie, it won't bite me. But just like that snake, sin can't help but bite you. It's in the very nature of sin to bite you. That's, that's what it's designed to do. It is by definition broken. It is by definition corrupt from what God created in this world. We see David living this in his life. If you, if you go back in the Bible a few chapters before the story that we're currently in, you see a story of, of David and Bathsheba. And David looks out and he sees this beautiful woman. And even though David's not married to her, even though David has his own wives, he decides, I, I, I must have her. And so he, he calls her to his palace. And, and he calls her into his chambers and at the very best commits adultery and at the very worst sexually assaults her. And the whole time... David's sitting there saying, this won't bite me. He sends her home, thinks nobody will ever know, and he thinks he's got away with it up to the point that, that he receives word from her that, hey, um, I'm pregnant, and my husband, when he comes home from war, he's going he's to be really mad, and everybody's going to know what, what happened between us. And, and so David comes up with a plan, more sin in his life deception and lies and, and he calls the husband Uriah home and he, he says Uriah I need to talk to you about you some things that while you're here why don't you you know go home and, and turn on some music and spend some time with your wife hoping to cover up his sin and, and in the midst of all of this deception and the lies that he's trying to cover up his sins he says this won't bite me but but Uriah, refu Uriah refuses to go home and so he sleeps on David's porch saying, I can't go home and be with my wife while I've got men out on the battlefield while they can't have these comforts. And so David once again resorts to sin. He invites more brokenness in his life and he sends orders to make sure that Uriah is murdered on the battlefield. And with the death of Uriah, David says, nobody will ever find out. This won't bite me. And very shortly after that, he calls Bathsheba up there. He marries her. Nobody will think a thing of them having a child if they're married. And he says, I think I've got away with it. I invited sin into my life and it, it didn't bite me. It didn't get me. But it's not very long after that that the prophet Nathan walks in and reveals to David that God knows what happened and, and what has happened to you will come with some consequences, that this sin will bite you. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 12. You don't have to read this, but just listen. This is what God says to David. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. The story that we've been fulfilling or that we've been um, learning the past couple of weeks between David and Absalom is the fulfillment of that prophecy. God promised David that, that this sin that you invited, this brokenness that you invited into your life, it's gonna come with consequences. It's gonna come with a bite. 
And most specifically, it'll come with a bite out of your own family, out of your own house. And we see that with Absalom. Absalom, the good-looking son with the excellent hair and the charming demeanor, has now decided that he is going to take over the kingdom that David is in charge of. And now we find David in our scripture today, we find David on the run, running to the desert, looking for a place to hide, looking for a place to live. Because if he stays in Jerusalem, Absalom will almost certainly kill him. I believe that David's sin has now bitten him. Our first take-home truth is this, is that sin is invited brokenness into our lives. Sin is invited brokenness into our lives. If you spend any time reading Romans, you'll come across a verse that says, the wages of sin is death. You guys know that one. We, 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 a lot of times we will express somebody their, their, their need for Jesus with that verse. The wages of sin is death. And the, and the word wages mean what you earn. So that Bible says what you earn when you sin is death. And we have our own definition of death. We tend to think of death as like that moment where our soul leaves our body and they, and they lay our body, our lifeless body in a casket. And that's what we think of as, as death. And that's true. That, that's, that's a result of the sin that we've invited into our life that everybody in here, we're going to face that one day. Uh, sometimes we think of death, and the Bible does go ahead and kind of explain this, that death is a, as a spiritual death, that because of our sin, we are separated from God for eternity. We're deserving of a place called hell where there's eternal punishment for all of the brokenness and corruption that we lived in our life. But death has one more step of deeper meaning than that. Death actually means the loss of life. And when we think of the loss of life, we tend to think of those two other things. But the loss of life means all of the misery arising from sin. All of the things that come out of sin, this is what the Bible calls death. We, we have lost the positive experience of life. God never meant to, for us to live in a world where we had to bury loved ones. God never meant for us to live in a world that had politics. Sorry, cheap shot. I had to throw that out there. God never meant for us to live in a world with abortion. God never meant to, for us to live in a world with bad breakups. God never meant for us to live in a world where we hurt. That wasn't his design. He created it good, but we invited the brokenness in. And so what we earn is this death. We earn in our lives this loss of life. David's going to find that out in this story. As a matter of fact, he's already started to find it out. If you have your Bibles and want to turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, this is verses 30 through 32. And David, remember, David's on the run. He's left Jerusalem. Listen to what David does. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came up to meet him, and his coat rent and earth on his head. So let's talk about what David's doing here. David's on the run, and, and he comes up to what we would call the Mount of Olives, and it's to the east of Jerusalem, and we know that David is fleeing east out into the desert. And as he passes the Mount of Olives, he stops and he decides, I've, I've got to climb this. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need to understand what the Mount of Olives meant at this time. It's known for two things. Number one, surprise, surprise, 
olive orchards. To this day, there are still olive orchards all over this mountain. But secondly, at the base of this mountain are several what we would call cemeteries, places of burial for the dead. So at this time in history, to many in Jerusalem, Mount, the Mount of Olives would have represented death, would have represented burial. And David takes this time to trudge up this mountain, and it tells us that he's in a deep state of mourning. David's not just hiking. David doesn't just want to see the, the beautiful view from the vista of this mountain. As he goes up the mountain, it tells us that he's crying. You can kind of have a sense of how David's walking up this mountain with his head hung and, and tears running down his face. David is going with his head covered at this time. That's a, a symbol of humility before God. He takes this time to just say, I am nothing, God, and you are everything. So he has this, his head covered and, and he climbs the mountain barefoot. You guys ever climbed a mountain barefoot? I don't suggest it. It's excruciating. I, I did this one time, uh, Mount Sh or Sugarloaf Mountain in the middle of uh, Greer's Ferry Lake. You go there by a boat or by a canoe, and I had these little slippery flip-flops. You guys know what I'm talking about, the little rubber ones that you can't walk in when they get wet. And so coming across the lake and getting over there, I was wet and I was dripping, and we were going to climb up and look at the top of this beautiful mountain. I thought it'd just be easier to go barefoot. It's excruciating pain, let me tell you, to try to walk up a mountain barefooted. And yet David chooses to do this as a sign and a symbol of mourning. The, the purpose of this is to have a physical manifestation of the uncomfort of his soul. And so with his feet hurting and tears running down his face and his head covered before God, he, he climbs this mountain to go pray and to go worship God. We, we see here that I think David is, maybe for the first time in the entire Bible, David is a broken man. He's lost everything. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his friends. He's lost his children. He's lost his purpose in life. He has nothing. He is broken. And the worst part of it to David is, is he knows, I invited this brokenness into my life. I brought this upon myself. I am suffering the consequences of my own circumstance or of my own uh, decisions. And I believe that we see here a repentant David. David. David now understands how the snake will bite you. Let me ask you this question about our lives. Is it, is it possible that in times that we found ourselves broken and times that we found ourselves in despair, is it possible that we invited that into our own lives? Like David, we made the choices that bring this up on us. And in this pain, whether we admit it or not, sometimes we've chosen to do that to ourselves. Now, you may listen to this and you may be wondering, Brian, are you, are you trying to teach me to just completely be scared of God, that God is just sitting up there to wait to punish me for everything that I do wrong? I don't think that's true of the Bible, but it would also be incorrect for me to say that God does not at times discipline his people. But that's not what's happening with David. And a lot of times that's not what happens with our lives, is, is sin brings with it inherent consequences. If you look at the situation David is in with Absalom, and you look at David's story, and in David's story, there's all of this sexual sin, and there's this murder in his life. You think about Absalom being his son, he grew up with that being his role model, as well as David's other children. And this whole problem with Absalom started years before the point we're at now, where one of David's children fell in love with his own sister and he forced himself upon her. It's pretty sickening to us, but gee, I wonder where he learned that it's okay to not control your sexual desires. Possibly from his father who 
finds random women across the kingdom and brings them into his bed. And so Absalom, infuriated at what had happened to the sister, Absalom goes and kills this other brother. Absalom goes and kills this other son. I wonder where Absalom learned that to fix a sin or to fix a situation that you murder people. Couldn't be that he learned it from his dad who had Uriah murdered so that he could marry Bathsheba. And, and this is the circumstance in which David has to push Absalom away as he mourns for the loss of his other son. He has to push Absalom away. And during the separation between David and Absalom, this is when Absalom decides that he should be king. After this time of repeated behaviors from the children of their father. You see, what David is experiencing now is a built-in consequence to the decisions he made years for and to how he raised his children and the role model he was and the sin that he led in his life and what he invited, the brokenness and emptiness into his life. And so now David, and I think he knows it full well, is suffering. How do we respond when we get in that similar situation? When we've done something and we know that God's not pleased with it and we know we invited that brokenness into our life, but all of a sudden those consequences just hit us like a ton of bricks. I think we get angry. We get prideful. We blame other people. That's our favorite one. This isn't fair. This isn't my fault. They did this to me. They caused me to do this. Isn't that what Adam did when he first invited sin into his life? God comes to Adam and goes, Adam, what you hiding for? Why are you wearing clothes? Did you do something wrong? Did you invite brokenness into your life? And, and what does Adam do? Starts pointing a finger. God, it was that woman. Is that, is that girl, it's her fault. She did this to me. I didn't do this to myself. She did this to me. And then, then Adam does maybe the ultimate sin. He turns around and goes, and God, you, you put her here. God, it's not my fault. That's between you and Eve. You, you brought me into this. To be honest with you, that's how I respond. Blame and pointing of fingers. Sometimes we think things are unfair and we pout. It's not fair. Why is their life great and my life's falling apart? Why doesn't this kind of thing ever seem to happen to the people I work with? Why do I suffer this brokenness and nobody else has to? I shouldn't deal with that. I think that's how most people respond, but I want you to look. For all of the mistakes David's made, I want you to look at how David responded to this moment in his life where he knew, he knew that he brought himself on himself. He climbed a mountain he worshiped that's not my first response in these times let, let me define this moment for us to, to make it very clear how important this is the worship in this story David has lost everything David is literally on the run with everybody that he still has his family he's literally on the run under penalty of death and David takes a moment as they pass the Mount of Olives and he says okay stop I need to take time to worship God. I think I would have kept running. I think many of us would have said, I don't have time to worship God. He's not taking care of me right now. I've got my own problems. But, but David stopped, and that tells me that to David, this moment of worship was a priority. This wasn't just something that he did in passing. This was a priority for him to take time and worship. <laughs> because see, David knew in the midst of all of his problems that God is good all the time and then God is always worthy of our worship even in our brokenness that's our next take home truth is that God is worthy of worship all the time 
And David, I, I can't tell you that I know exactly how this happened. But in this moment, David takes time once again to record his heart and to record his worship. I don't know if somebody sat there and listened to him pray and they wrote it down. I don't know if maybe David just, just journaled his feelings, but I know that this 22nd Psalm was written while David was on the Mount of Olives. And it gives us a picture of what's in his heart. And so listen to what David writes in this moment of brokenness. Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far away from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou, and inhabitest the, praise, the praises of Israel's. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and am despised of the people. You see, in, in David's moment of hurting, and even in this moment of worship, David just cries out to God. Can you feel David's hopelessness in this? The first thing he says out is, says, my God, my God, and you can picture him shouting, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken's a word that we use typically in church and at weddings, forsaking all others. Forsaken means abandoned. And so, and so David is on top of this mountain. He's crying out, God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you not answering my prayers? Why don't you hear me? And see, David, out of maybe all the people in the Old Testament, he knew what it felt like to feel the presence of God with him. We're talking about a man that sat in a field with sheep and he worshiped. And he felt the presence of God. We're talking about a man that fled from a king that tried to kill him once already. This is his second time. And he felt the presence of God protecting him. Talking about a man who walked onto a field with a giant with a rock. And he felt the presence of God. And in this moment, David does not feel the presence of God. David does not feel like God is with him, and he's missing it. He's missing God's comfort. And he understands that he invited this into his life with his own sin. I'll point to myself because I know you guys are all much more holier than me, but there's been times when I felt abandoned by God. I felt like his presence wasn't with me. And I think if we're honest, we've all felt that way at some point when I just feel like God's not hearing and God's not with me and God's not guiding me. And I wanna be very clear before we go on that, that you can do nothing to take away God's love for you. You can do nothing to take away the fact that you are his if you are his. But we can put ourselves in a situation where we walk out of the presence of God where we leave him behind because we're chasing our own sin and inviting brokenness into our lives. Don't sit down with your friends for a good gossip session where you're gonna run down everybody and everything in the world and expect God's presence to be there with you. Don't go out looking for an escape in the world if drugs or alcohol and expect God's presence to be with you in that moment. Don't expect to find yourself in a physical relationship outside of marriage and expect God's presence to be with you in that moment. And most of the time when we feel alone and abandoned, it's because we have chosen to walk away from his presence, even though his love is still with us. Our next take-home truth is the brokenness of sin causes our thirst for God. The brokenness of sin causes our thirst for God. You know, I, I find that I only thirst for things when it's not abundant. 
If you put me down here and I'm walking up and down the White River, I will never be thirsty because there's more water there than I could drink in a thousand lifetimes. It's available and it's abundant and it's easy and I never have to be thirsty. But you put me in the middle of a desert where there is no abundance of water, where there is nothing, then, then I will be thirsty. And the separation between us and God caused by our sin means that there is no abundance of God at every moment. It means that we live our lives until we come to know him, separated from him, thirsting for him because we don't have him like Adam and Eve had him before the fall. It is only when we become followers of Christ that that thirst can be quenched. And in this moment, David is thirsting for God because he's walked away from God's presence. He's thirsting for God because he's experiencing the brokenness of his sin. He's thirsting for God because he is separated from God because of his own choices. And he cries out and he says, God, you don't even hear me. You don't answer my prayers. You're not even listening. But David was wrong. God was listening. If you go back to the story in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, you'll see what he, he prayed for. In that moment, he finds out that his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, had went to be with Absalom. I'm not gonna read this story. And so what he prays to God is, God, if Ahithophel is with Absalom, Ahithophel is the best advisor I have, he will give him excellent advice and surely Absalom will find a way to come kill me. So he prays, God, frustrate the vice, advice of Ahithophel. Make sure that that advice is either not heard or that it's bad advice. And in that moment, it tells us about a friend of his that comes up, Hushai, another trusted advisor to David. And, and David gives him this order. You can go with me, but you're no use to me out here. But if you went back to Jerusalem and you pretended to be on Absalom's spy, if you went back and you were a, a spy and, and, you, and you gave advice to Absalom, you could give him the wrong advice and you could argue with Ahithophel. And maybe, just maybe, he'll listen to you over the advice of Ahithophel. Now, I want you to look at the moment that that happens. David cries, God, give me a way that Ahithophel's um, advice will be no good. And in that moment, God provides for him someone who can frustrate that advice. And you see in David that he was not abandoned and he was not unheard. His prayer was answered. The next two chapters are full of these discussions between Hushai and Ahithophel, going back and forth and Absalom going, okay, I'm gonna forget this advice and listen to this. God answered David's prayer in that moment. Even though David felt abandoned, even though David felt like he was alone, God answered his cries. And you see a change in the middle of the 22nd Psalm. I can't tell you how this happened. I don't know if David wrote half of it at first and then he wrote half of it. But after this moment, you see a change where you see hope in David. You see that he is full of expectation of God's goodness and that God does hear him. And I would argue that he feels this way after this prayer is answered. Let me read to you 22 through 28 in Psalm 22. This is David in the same psalm, in the same poem, in the same song that he's writing. He says, I will declare thy name unto thy, my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. Listen to what David said. He starts us off going with God, you don't listen to me. And now we see this change in David where he says, he heard me when I needed him. 
He was there. He didn't abandon me. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek, uh, they shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall be remembered, shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nation. In this, you can see David's change. You see the picture of David walking up this mountain, barefooted, tears running down his face, head covered, crying out, and he's going, God, you've left me. I am all alone. You don't even listen to my prayers anymore. And then you see a change in him where he says, God doesn't turn his back on me. God hears my prayers. You see in David that he goes from despair to hope in this moment. When he realizes that God did not abandon him just because he dealt with the consequences of his sin. Our last take-home truth is God does not abandon us. And we can feel the excitement of David, but we can have that same excitement too because every last one of us invited that same brokenness into our lives that David invited into his Every one of us has dealt with pride. We have tried to be our own God. We've dealt with anger or lust or we've murdered people in our hearts and God did not abandon us. And I can say that with absolute authority of scripture from Psalm 22. I'm completely assured of this because Psalm 22 tells a deeper story. Even though David wrote this, because it is scripture, we know that somehow God wrote it through David. And in the midst of all of David's despair and all of his worry, as he tells us what it feels like to be abandoned, what it feels like to deal with the brokenness of sin, God's writing the story of someone else. Let me read to you just some select verses from Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, my strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and that has brought me into the dust of death. I may tell all of my bones, that means I may see all of my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, David wrote those words. And he wrote them of what he thought was his suffering, but he wrote those words of the suffering of another. Those words describe the exact agony that Jesus Christ went through on the cross. Brother Danny, if you want to come up here. And so in David's despair, we see a new hope because David was not the only person who suffered for his sin. David had someone else who would suffer for him and someone who suffered for me and you. That when we deserved brokenness, when we deserved forgottenness, and when we deserved death in this life as a physical death, a spiritual life, or the loss of the life that God had planned for us, when we invited that brokenness into our life, God said, no, I'm not going to make you live with this thirst for God forever. And he brought Jesus Christ, and he had him deal with the agony of being abandoned on the cross. And he had him deal with the agony of being forgotten. And he had him deal with the agony of the brokenness of sin for you and me. And if you're sitting here today and you feel thirsty for something and you don't know what it is, but just something's not right in you, let me tell you, that is your soul thirsting for God because of the brokenness and the sin that you invited into your life. And if you're ready for that to end, 
if you're ready for that thirst to be quenched, all Jesus Christ asks of you is that you put your faith in him. This is the time to do it. This is the time to let him take your brokenness. Please stand.